lead to the closure of international airspace. Millions of passengers were stranded four years ago when a smaller Icelandic volcano spewed ash into the sky. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning to you. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Fed officials discuss an earlier rate rise than is consensus. Bank of America looks set to pay another 17 billion U.S. dollars in fines over mortgage bonds. And China may convert state-owned enterprises to public-private entities that might see salaries of some of the top officials slashed in half. And coming up later, we'll be speaking with Morgan Stanley's chief economist on China, Helen Chen. I'm not exactly sure that how sustainable this recent wave of liquidity coming into Hong Kong would be, you know, in into the next uh, quarters or uh, uh, to come. So all that money rushing in, she says, uh, maybe don't count on it, uh, may not continue. And she also says that the China bears are not on the rise, as I had suggested. Well, probably from my seat, I have to say that maybe I got to see, uh, you know, a disproportionately large share of the bears in the zoo. Most important observation, interestingly, is that actually in the last three years or so, when growth was decelerating, in fact, we have seen a decline. Uh, in the number of bears, especially in terms of how muted their versions of hard landing would have become. Seeing the bears in the zoo, well, she says that they don't think implosion anymore for the China economy, just slow, slow growth. A two-part interview with Ms. Chow coming up later in the program. We'll also be talking about banks and tech with John Foley of Reuters Breaking Views. And you've heard of Uber and Airbnb and how they are disrupting the taxi and hotel industries. Well, Sprinklebit is a trading platform designed to integrate social networking with investing. And they are also hoping to shake up the status quo. We'll have Sprinklebit Chief Executive Alex Wallen on the program. Let's take a real quick look here at markets and early trading in Asia. Looks like the numbers will be green today. Don't have too many details yet. Markets just uh, perking up a little bit. Uh, the euro is trading at $1.32 U.S., so that is the euro down and the dollar up. The dollar at 103.69 Japanese yen, so the dollar up against the yen. That usually uh, means that money flowing back into the U.S. and uh, means that sometimes stock markets go higher. The pound now 12 Hong Kong dollars, 86 cents. So a lot more on the markets uh, in just a moment. But first, we look at pensions here locally. The chief secretary has poured cold water on hopes that the government will make a quick decision on pensions. Our chief secretary, Carrie Lam, spoke after a report recommended a new $3,000 a month universal pension scheme. We get more here in short form from Damon Pang. The year-long study scrutinized six proposed pension schemes and decided that one that will offer all permanent residents aged 65 or above $3,000 a month was the best option. After a one-off government injection of $50 billion, the program would be funded by a new payroll old-age tax, which will take up to 2.5% from the paychecks of salary earners and the same amount from their employers. 
And it looks like, well, so we have a longer report on that a little bit later in this. Uh, that's just a tease of that. Uh, so stay with us uh, on Money for Nothing. The program runs from 8 to 9 o'clock. And on the international front, it looks like we will get details tomorrow about a massive settlement by Bank of America on mortgage bonds. Agencies say the bank will pay about $17 billion, including more than $9 billion in cash. The agreement would resolve civil investigations by federal and state prosecutors in places like California, New York, and New Jersey. Bank of America has been hit the hardest of all the banks to the tune of almost $80 billion. And that is, of course, after paying back all of the loans that came from the TARP program. Most of the $80 billion was because of B of A's purchase of subprime lender Countrywide Financial. And now we learn that the former head of Countrywide, Angelo Mozilla, may himself be in the crosshairs. Here's Bloomberg's Mark Crumpton. Countrywide Financial co-founder Angelo Mazzillo has not escaped the wrath of prosecutors for his company's role in inflating the U.S. housing bubble that preceded the financial crisis. More than 12 months after a deadline passed to file criminal charges, U.S. attorneys in Los Angeles, California, are preparing a civil lawsuit against Mazzillo and as many as 10 other former Countrywide employees. That's according to two people with knowledge of the matter. The government is making a last-ditch effort to hold him accountable for the excesses of the past decade's subprime mortgage boom using a 25-year-old law that's helped the Justice Department win billions of dollars from Wall Street banks. So a little bit later this morning, we'll be waiting on the HSBC Market Economics uh, August Flash Manufacturing PMI for China. It may be 51.5, so we'll get that report at 9.45 this morning. That's something that people do watch quite closely for uh, indications about the China economy. Uh, Wall Street stocks ended mostly higher. The S&P 500 just missed a record close. The Fed minutes at first ruffled markets because it suggested that maybe interest rates could go up sooner than uh, what we thought. But then it seemed the central bank was in no rush to raise interest rates. That was a bit of a head fake in the headlines because we suddenly see, oh, the Fed might be going sooner than we expected uh, based on the objectives, which is code language for uh, the the labor markets improving faster than they expected. Uh, But you have to take that into the context of where they were at the time of the meeting. Uh, The the last employment report they had in hand going into that meeting showed almost a 300,000 gain in employment. Uh, Since then, we've seen some cooling in the economy. So we had a a much tamer July employment report. Retail sales were flat. Inflation was on the cool side. Consumer sentiment pulled back. Uh, So this was a Fed that was a little bit worried that maybe things are poised to boil over. uh, And subsequently, we've learned that uh, things are are, uh, relatively cool. Relatively cool. That's Carl Riccadona from Deutsche Bank. Why do I worry so much on this program about interest rates? Well, you probably know that instinctively. If interest rates go up, some of your costs will go up, particularly if you have a mortgage. I'll just give you an example. Let's say you borrowed about $8 million on a flat here. So let's say you put 30% down. Anyway, you bought something up there around $11, $12 million. If your mortgage is around $30,000 a month, and we go from the current uh, interest rates here up to about, say, 5%, which could happen. And that's 400 basis points. It could happen. Your payments would go from about 30000 a month to 50000 a month. So you'd be looking at another $20,000 out the door. Anyway, Yale professor Bob Schiller says the Fed chair, Janet Yellen, is considering much more now in looking at interest rates than just jobs. Janet Yellen is setting a different pace for the Fed. It's not so focused on some single indicator. Remember back in January, they said, 
when the unemployment rate falls to 6.5%, that will be a trigger. Now it's a whole dashboard of different things. And I think it's a good development. It's, uh, the, the strength of the labor market is not something that's easily described. Uh, so it's giving, in a sense, more uh, vagueness to their statement and more, maybe more discretion, uh, intuitive discretion. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 59 points to 16,979. The S&P 500 gained four points to 1986. Priya Misra from Bank of America says wages are not rising all that sharply at the moment, so she's not too concerned about rates. I think wage inflation we're not seeing any signs of. But the other, you know, uh, back to Robert's point around uh, this whole dashboard approach, there are so, uh, so the JOLTS data that came out recently, that shows a pretty big improvement in job openings rate, in hires rate. So some of the indicators are signaling a significant improvement towards their objective. Wages is not. So I think the big debate right now is how much uh, uh, underutilization is actually out there. And I think Jackson Hole is going to be very interesting on that front. The yield on the 10-year Treasury didn't move too much, ticked up a little bit, right now around 2.43%. Let's say good morning to Michael Shaw from Sunrise Brokers. Good morning, Mr. Shaw. Morning. Yes, great. Uh, Great to have you with us on the program. Uh, So we're all kind of on rate swatch here, what happens when the tapering finishes uh, and looking at earnings. uh, So many things to be concerned about. What are you most concerned about this morning as you look out uh, from your sales trading perch? Um, you know, we're we're looking at uh, you know the market itself having risen so much across you know all equity all, all equity uh, sort of indices. Um, looking at Japan, I think you know we have a little bit of you know we have a little bit of a lag looking for policy risk because um, you know the, the next two events, let's say in Japan, are one is the cabinet reshuffle, and then potentially the casino bill uh, or talk of the casino bill. So, you know, in the, in the short term, you know, after the, 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 the you know, the, the concerns of, um, you know, GDP contraction uh, post the sales tax gains, um, I think the concern, you know, the, the, the sort of risk factors going forward are uh, related to, you know, what, what uh, changes Abe has in the cabinet plus, you know, what, what further policy will, draw, will bring back the growth in Japan. So you're worried about Japan a little bit, thinking about that. Um, what about Europe? It seems like the negative interest rate policy will, in the end, uh, mean a lot more liquidity out there. Is Europe worth looking at now? I think Europe is, uh, you know, it needs a lot more structural reform. Um, if anything, you know, if you if you look at look at the, the you know the global economy as a whole, um, Asia actually is providing much a lot more structural reform than we've seen in the past decade. You know, Japan, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, China, uh, relative to say Europe, which you know uh, Germany seems to be um, trying to run the sh- run the show with an iron fist. Um, so you know, and then the 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 the, the addition of uh, uh, um, tensions with Russia make it a lot more difficult. You know, make it make the sort of outlook of it much more uncertain at this point. Um, you know, and and I think that you know the the, the key concern really is their energy consumption. You know, the, how they're going to get their energy given the tensions with Russia. Yeah, but wouldn't you acknowledge that? The story of this week has been that uh, the geopolitical tension seems to have abated a bit. Yes, I think.
think that um, you know people are trying to look at the positives. It's been a, a somewhat holiday season. Uh, many, many, uh, you know, I guess in the Western Hemisphere, many uh, schools are still on holiday, um, and people are, you know, taking advantage of of that period, like you know, so Japan, Oban, um, you know, taking taking vacation volumes and turnover in, in in various equity markets across you know across the world have been you know relatively low. Um, so you know, you know, the players haven't been as active as well. So, you know, given the fact that people are, are not wanting to fight the trend so much, then I think the market has just gradually crept up with, uh, with you know, as the tension sort of, or the, you know, the, the headlines start to fade into the sort of distance, I guess. We're seeing some reform um, ideas coming out of China now about reforming uh, state-owned enterprises. Uh, comment uh, from Peng Jianguo, who's an official at uh, Sasax Research Center, saying that China might might convert most of the state-owned enterprises to a mixed private-public ownership. And the SMP is running a story saying that part of that would be that the government might cut salaries of top executives at the SOEs in half. We've seen a big run-up in China stocks of late. Are you playing Hong Kong China at the moment? Yes, we are. We, you know, I think the most interesting thing in terms of the, you know, the China uh, story yeah, is, is obviously, you know, the, the key message is reform, which Z and, you know, and, and, Li, and Li have, you know, really cemented in their, you know, in their, in their, you know, progress as, as a new gov, you know, the government handover. Now, the thing is, is that the key, I think, you know, the, the two key events that are coming up in Hong Kong and China, one is Alibaba listing, mm. and the second thing is the Hong Kong China Emma Shanghai Connect. Now, what we what we think here is is that the e-commerce world of China has grown so substantially that it represents such a high percentage of the economy now, or you know the growth. If you actually look at the GDP breakdown, services become you know like a third of the economy. Now, the the, the, key, the key thing is is that the, the two you know the, with the Alibaba listing, which is going to be about two hundred billion dollars, um, it highlights the the, the valuation on ten cent. Which is currently about 157 billion U.S. dollars. Um, we think that you know, in terms of the rankings, you know, the largest companies of, of China, um, Tencent now ranks about the fifth largest, and actually, it's very underowned by uh, you know any China-related you know China-related SOE or or state pension fund or any sort of Chinese mutual type fund either. So we think that. The opening, you know, the, the you know the Alibaba listing itself highlights is going to be very good for ten cent. Yeah, it's it's very good for ten cent, yeah. but also it I think it also tra- potentially trans you know transforms the the way we 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 should start looking at China and how it you know how it's evolving. I.e., you know, it's it's like a 1950s U.S. Uh, we you know you know we're going through the change in productivity from manufact you know shifting from secondary uh, you know manufacturing type industry to more tertiary services oriented economy yeah. and you know you, you're seeing the two Goliaths, Tencent being if you actually look at the actions of Tencent they've been subscribing to two you know one, one recent um, uh, placement by Citic Pacific and then now the talk is on the uh, Sinopec retail um, you know, retail spin-off that they, you know, that they, they've been, you know, the, the reform package has been talking about, or you know, and and thus we are starting to see the, you know, the 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 building of a, you know, uh, I guess a Goliath in 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 the China, and I don't, you know, I don't see 
enough Chinese people owning the stock. Okay, yeah, interesting call. Yeah, a lot of people like Tencent. Uh, I'm among them, own it, uh, yes. and and we'll stick with it, uh, even though it's at an all-time high. So give some people a little pause for thought. Anyway, uh, Mike, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Yeah, that's my, Michael Shaw, he's a sales trader at Sunrise Brokers. Segways nicely into my chat with Helen Chow, the chief greater China economist at Morgan Stanley. We talked about reform. We talked about the mini stimulus. We talked about so much having to do with China and Hong Kong. We'll start off here with a little uh, question about whether the mini stimulus was really needed. In in terms of the recent mini stimulus, we indeed have seen a faster than expected pass through of its impact coming starting from the uh, from from the second half of the second quarter, and now even now we're still seeing its uh, its uh, its emerging uh, emerging impact. And such an effect, I would say, is exceeding our expectations to a large extent in terms of the timing. And at the same time, I think in terms of the intensity, it also pretty has been pretty strong. So. Whether this actually lasts into fourth quarter, I think that would be the most important question. So far, it looks it's still promising because policymakers are determined to keep financial conditions loose. If they continue to do so until the end of September, I would say most likely we can see this um, growth rebound probably sustaining until early 2015. Does the mini-stimulus mean a setback of reform to a certain degree? I wouldn't necessarily say that. The reason is because that the countercyclical policy adjustments are not necessarily in conflict with the long-term structural reform measures. For example, the high-speed railway construction is not necessarily holding back fiscal or monetary policy reforms. However, with that said, we clearly are looking forward to more implementation of the reform measures mentioned on the pl- third plenary of the 18th CPC last November. It did seem that uh, mini stimulus was needed. Um, there were definitely some problems that were coming in. If you look at electricity consumption, rail traffic, uh, definitely numbers down. Uh, how dramatic was the slowdown? Do you think that forced policymakers to step in? I think at the end of March, that was already becoming pretty apparent. That、uh, growth deceleration was、uh, was pretty much catching、uh, the policymakers'、uh, attention, and by then we were we have already been suggesting that、uh, you know we were expecting growth to slow down as a result of financial condition tightening starting from Q3 2013. So to us it wasn't a surprise, but to many policymakers I think the surprising factor was also part of the reason why they had to come in and do something. Secondly, in terms of the magnitude of the slowdown, I think it has. Been pretty dramatic within a quarter or two relative to a very、uh, fast growth、uh, Q3 last year, and therefore, in terms of the volatility of the growth, I do think that was the important reason for policymakers to come in and do something. Now we see a rush of money coming in. It seems that、uh, investors—it's a story now around the world. Uh, fund managers seem to be very attracted now to、uh, to Hong Kong and China.、Um, I wonder: Do you think it's well supported by what's happening、uh, in the economy, or does the economy even matter in terms of these fund flows? Well, I would say the fund flows will probably still be pursuing the economy with the fastest. 
you know, uh, growth uh, uh, perspective. But uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it, the, um, you know, the, the evidence already was very strong for all these funding inflows recently coming into Hong Kong was largely due to Russian money. I think there was some circumstantial evidence that suggesting that there was some money coming in, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be convinced. That so you're, that downplaying, that you're downplaying the Russian uh, flow of money, or, or you're just saying that you're not even that confident that money is rushing in from uh, from asset managers all over the world. I guess both. Uh, first of all, I don't think that there is very clear, solid evidence that this is all Russian money. And secondly, I'm not exactly sure that how sustainable this recent mm-hmm. wave of liquidity coming into Hong Kong would be, you know, in into the next uh, quarters or uh, uh, to come. And I think for those two reasons, uh, we still need to be pretty cautious regarding, you know, the perspective of the 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 outlook uh, of the macro economy because that finally would drive where the you know where the the investors will want to put their money. Um, what about Hong Kong? Um, and again, in referencing fund flows here, you have property value is very high. Stock market now has picked up a lot. We've hit something like a six-year high at a time when the economy is decelerating. Um, is that okay? Um, are we okay at the moment in the Hong Kong economy? I guess the market is uh, um, is always suggesting some useful information. At least the information so far that we received seems to be implying that investors are are, are pretty you know uh, reasonably complacent about the current situation in terms of the liquidity um, and and also the potential for domestic demand uh, you know slow down to stabilize the, at the current level. I wouldn't necessarily say that the investors have overlooked the uh, the macro growth deceleration and therefore just blindly just run into this market to chase something because obviously I think the, the macro trend is you know it can be felt in more than one place and I'm sure that is reflected and, and priced into the market um, going into going into for example 2015 whether we see that continuing I think that largely depends on how the second half pans out on this program over the past uh, week or so we've had a little bit of a mini debate on whether or not these dramatic fund flows, and I've mentioned it a few times because it is quite dramatic. I mean, HKMA has had to intervene a dozen times to keep the Hong Kong dollar within the convertibility range. Um, does that stoke the economy? Does does that in any way affect demand eventually? Does it help improve the Hong Kong economy? It can, but uh, it will take time. Um, in the short term, I think the, such a pass-through will not be immediately felt. The reason is because that if the, most of the outlet for such money is for, let's say, you know, uh, secondary market, equity market uh, transactions, you don't immediately see that. Um, you know, and other than the uh, other than the potential income effect or wealth effect uh, through people's consumption. Uh, however, if there were more IPOs coming in, it encourages more debt borrowing from overseas, etc., that potentially also, you know, such liquidity inflow can help with the economy because that allocates more more capital towards a, a region that where, you know, growth is still relatively fast compared to the rest of the world. 
Ellen Chow, Greater China Economist uh, for Morgan Stanley, speaking here on Money for Nothing in a recorded interview. I'll have parts of uh, the second part of that interview coming up later on the program. Well, Bank of China met recently with European investors in an effort to sell billions of dollars worth of new shares. Officials from the bank were in London to meet with fund managers to gauge interest. And we're joined by John Foley, China editor for Reuters Breaking Views. John, good morning. Thanks, as usual, for coming on the program. Um, I guess the China banks, they do from time to time have to raise money. Um, Is there anything significant in this? Well, the significant thing is that they have lent hand over fist for the last uh, couple of years. Their loans have doubled since 2010. And if they're going to keep up anything like that pace, they need capital because they have to hold capital against every new loan they make. And they can make capital through two things. One is through earnings that they retain, but those are slowing rapidly, as we've already seen from Bank of China's results yesterday. And the big banks will show a similar story next week. So the other thing is that they can come out to investors, pass around the hat, and get investors to put up capital. And we reckon there's almost $100 billion of capital that's being raised at the moment by Chinese banks. Not just regular capital like shares, but new quirky securities like preferred shares, and so-called Basel bonds, bonds which are compliant with the Basel rules on bank stability. And they're going overseas to do this. So Bank of China wants to raise $6.5 billion of preferred shares from institutions in Hong Kong and Europe. And this is a very, this is a very new thing. It's not clear that the market can accommodate this or that it should. How much interest are you seeing from investors? Well, I think investors will be interested, actually, because people seem to think that the banks have stabilized, not only just because the bad loans they report are still low. In my case, improbably low. I, I really think the 1% bad loan ratios these banks are reporting are pure fiction. Um, the other thing is that people think banks are going to be um, recipients of lots of reform initiatives in China. Just in the last couple of days, we've seen reports that Xi Jinping is planning to change the way bank executives are paid in China, cutting their salaries by half, which again, sounds ludicrous. But the idea is that as banks reform, they'll become safer and more efficient. So if you're buying shares, these are only going to get safer and safer investments. He basically is saying that this is going to be a long and difficult road to reform uh, the economy and to reform society. And even said yesterday, if the paper quotes him correctly, to uh, called on cadres to allow a little room for dissent if necessary. What does he mean there? Well, I think it's this idea that you have to let go of control a little bit to make the economy work better. You have to have a bit of creative creative destruction in some cases, so let people make mistakes. And this is the big challenge, I think, for China over the next five to ten years, is letting people make mistakes, letting companies go bankrupt, maybe even letting banks fail. At the moment, there's no sign that they're actually ready to do that. Every time a bond is about to default, we see it getting bailed out at the last minute by a local government. And until you're ready to really allow failure and dissent and, you know, dissonance on, on company boards, you're not going to get that kind of market efficiency that you need to keep China's growth rates at their current levels for the next 10, 20, 30 years. We're getting some market efficiencies from the new economy. A company like Alibaba is uh, disrupting a lot of the way business is done. Uh, in any way, do you think that Alibaba will disrupt the banking institutions in, in uh, China? Well, Alibaba has already massively disrupted the banking institutions by launching these online funds where you can put your surplus balances on their sites and get a return that's way better than anything you can get in the bank. So already the banks are struggling to catch up and they're offering all kinds of products of their own. Alibaba is a great disruptor, but it's also quite cleverly playing the party line in a sense, like they're creating new jobs 
everything they do is supposedly for the benefit of consumers. So they're kind of walking that fine line. I think Alibaba is a good, you know, it's a good emblem for reform in a sense. It's a popular and successful private company. But really, this is going to come from the top. If Xi Jinping is serious about allowing dissent, that's great news. But really, the proof's in the pudding. Just briefly, 30 seconds or so, what are your thoughts on Alibaba's listing? Well, I mean, Hong Kong, it's no great loss for Hong Kong, frankly. It's going to be the biggest tech IPO ever, probably. But already we're seeing signs that this company has maybe grown too fast, like the, the accounting anomalies that they say they might have found in the company they bought in Hong Kong uh, earlier in the year. I think it's going to be a big, interesting company, eventually probably a must-buy stock. But there are going to be some wobbles on the way. All right, John, sorry uh, we have to go, but uh, we're at the bottom of the hour of the news coming up. Uh, but a pleasure having you here on Money for Nothing. John Foley, China editor, Reuters Breaking Views. Well, the markets um, are fairly significantly higher. The Nikkei up 83 points, and Australia's rallying as well. Showers today, mainly cloudy, and some sunshine as well. The maximum temperature, 29 degrees. News coming up next. Eight thirty-one. the news with Samantha Butler. A pro-democracy legislator says there seems to be room for negotiation at political reform talks with mainland officials in Shenzhen today. Around 50 legislators will attend a two-hour forum hosted by Basic Law Committee Chairman Li Fei. Pan-Democrats are also expecting to have a one-hour meeting with officials on the sidelines. Speaking to RTHK this morning, legislator Kenneth Leung from the accountancy sector expressed some optimism. Dialogue we had with Zhang Xiaoming in the past few days, I think there seems to be some rooms for maneuvering and negotiation, but we will have to wait and see. So of course, there are talks about the you know, NPC standing committee handing down a very conservative, you know, proposal with you know nomination threshold being half of the committee. But if that is the case, I think there will be quite a big response from the citizens, especially when people are saying Occupy Central may take place. Of course, we do not want to see this happen. We want dialogue to be open. We want the negotiation process to be continuing. The U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder has arrived in St. Louis following nearly two weeks of protests in the suburb of Ferguson, sparked by the shooting dead by police of an unarmed black teenager. Mr. Holder, who's meeting police, federal investigators and residents, explained why he was there. Why would I be anyplace other than right here and right now? You know, to the people in this area who um, are deserving of our attention and we want to help as best we can. And we also want to listen. That's the main part of this trip. We want to listen to hear about the issues that you all are, uh, are dealing with this evening. Are there ways in which uh, we can help? Ukrainian border guards are preparing to inspect the first trucks from a huge Russian aid convoy heading to the rebel-held east of the country. A Ukrainian security official said four vehicles had moved into the customs zone near Ukraine's border. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The time is 8.33. Coming up in this half hour, we'll hear more from Helen Chow, the chief Greater China economist at Morgan Stanley. We'll also be speaking with Alex Wallen, chief executive of Sprinklebit Holdings. That's an interesting company that may disrupt investing. It's a sort of social networking integration with the world of investing. And that coming up a little bit later. We'll also be looking at pensions here in a moment. And we'll keep you up to date on how the markets are moving. The Nikkei is higher. The ASX 200 in Australia is higher. But the cost being sold is a little bit lower. Oil prices are staying low. You remember about two weeks ago, we had Brent crude at $116 a barrel, now one hundred two twenty six. So hopefully that filters through to what you pay at the pump if you drive. The chief secretary is tempering hopes on a pension scheme here. Uh, Kerry Lam was speaking after a long-awaited report came out that recommended a $3,000 a month universal pension scheme that would mainly be funded by salary earners and employers. She said the Commission on Poverty, which she chairs, has no timetable on this issue. She also declined to say whether the current administration would implement any pension proposals even within its term. I believe that at the end of the day, we will definitely need to go out for an informed public debate in order to get some uh, broad consensus uh, on this very controversial subject before we could really take it forward. Uh, I could not commit um, the Commission uh, to any timetable for the time being, except to assure you that the Commission will spare no time and will convene another meeting in due course to continue discussion on this very important report. Let's get some details on the pension scheme that has been recommended. Here's RTHK's Cecil Wong. If the government ultimately implements the chosen pension program, it'd have to pump $50 billion of public money to help fund the $3,000 monthly payments. It'd then be sustained by a tax on salaries. Workers who make less than $6,500 a month won't have to pay, but their employers will have to shell out 1% of their workers' salaries a month. But people who make between ten dollars and $20,000 a month will be required to contribute 1% of their pay matched by their employers. And the tax rises to 2.5% for those making over 20000 again with their companies making equal contributions. The head of the government-appointed study, Hong Kong University's chair social work professor Nelson Chow, admitted that he expects a backlash from both workers and the business sector who may not be happy with paying more beyond their existing MPF contributions. But he hopes people will take a wider view of the proposal. We have to remember that we have one in three elderly people who are living at the level of CSSA or below. I think we have to recognize this and find a solution to solve the problem. Professor Chow added that he doesn't think that such a tax would become a large burden for most people. For those who are earning relatively low incomes, they contribute just uh, two or three or even just uh, $100 a month. I don't think that is really a burden for both the employer and employees. And for those who are earning high incomes, I think... It's fair to ask them to pay more. He also explained that the payments will not be means-tested because doing so could exclude many elderly people who need financial help, even if they don't officially fall below the poverty line. We are talking about a very large number of elderly who are not really supposed to need CSSA, but also they are not rich enough to have enough savings for all age. All six proposals that were studied are projected to run into varying levels of structural deficits beyond 2020 if they are implemented. But Professor Chow thinks this could be offset by future government cash injections or possible changes to contribution levels.
RTHK's Cecil Wong with that report. So what does the business sector think of the pension plan? Our Hugh Chiverton asked the chairman of the Federation of Hong Kong Industries, Stanley Lau, for his view. I think, you know, uh, the, propose, the proposal for this uh, pension for all <coughs> and old age uh, tax, um, I mean, the, that would be too much, you know, for the uh, en- enterprises, you know, uh, particularly, you know, most of the uh, enterprises or companies in Hong Kong, they are uh, small, medium enterprises, you know. I mean, if uh, if we are going to... Um, to, I mean, the proposed, you know, such kind of uh, retirement pension, <coughs> you know, um, um, of Hong Kong dollars, you know, 3000 a month for everyone, then, uh, I mean, aged uh, uh, 65 or over, then, you know, um, I think, you know, most of the employers and the enterprises have to uh, pay additionally, you know, uh, you know, a certain amount of money in a month. You know, that would be a big burden, you know, to most of the uh, SME. How much of a burden, though? Because we're talking about one or two and a half, perhaps two and a half, as much as two and a half percent uh, uh, to be paid uh, from the wage bill. Would that really make Mm -hmm. a big impact? Uh, Yeah, sure. I mean, we're not talking about one employee. We are talking, you know, uh, numbers of employees, you know, in a company. You know, uh, the employee, you know, uh, himself or herself, you know, uh, would only, you know, uh, take away from uh, from their salary, you know, only one or, or maximum 2.5% of it, you know. Um, but, you know, uh, the enterprises, you know, uh, they need to pay to all their employees, you know, that was, you know, a, a big amount of money. Well, that is Stanley Lau from the Federation of Hong Kong Industries speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today. Very good morning to you. 21 minutes before 9 o'clock. Thanks for joining us here on Radio 3, the program Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, just a few moments ago, we heard about how Alibaba is disrupting the financial services industry in China. We know you've heard of Uber and Airbnb and how they're disrupting the taxi and hotel industries. Now comes Sprinklebit, a trading platform designed to integrate social networking with investing. Let's see whether it is also doing a little disrupting. We're joined by Alex Wallen, Chief Executive of Sprinklebit Holdings. Good morning, Mr. Wallen. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing? Yeah, it's good to have you on the program. Um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, product that you've got here or a platform, uh, a service. How does it actually work? Yes, so it's based on four cornerstones. We like to call it the, the social, the educational, the simulator, and the brokerage. So the, the primary focus here is on the social where basically you can follow your friends or experts on team on how they're trading, how they are investing, and then you can use our education to educate yourself about investing strategies. You can use the simulator in order to practice those strategies, and then we have a real full-fledged brokerage to uh, invest in the U.S. market. Do people really want to share their ideas about investing? Maybe they'd be a little embarrassed. It's a little close to the bone, isn't it? You'll be surprised, Ryan. Uh, we actually have a, a huge uh, sharing rate. Of course, you can set it up if you don't want to share something. You can set it as private. But uh, the majority of our uh, community, everybody shares because there is a little bonus twist to it that the one with the most uh, followers 
those actually are going to be able to get compensated for those amount of followers that they have. Oh, that's interesting. How do they get compensated? Yeah, so it's, it's based on uh, the more followers you have, um, and we allocate what we call a kickback to the ones that have those followers. And uh, basically, you just have to be good at what you're doing. And we have a rating system that we call the Voting Power Index, and we can rate how good an investor you are. So the better investor you are, the more keen people will be to follow you, the more followers you have, um, the more you will get out of this kickback. My experience uh, with people sharing stories about investing is they like to share their winners, but they don't talk too much about their losers. Yeah, that's uh, actually something we've seen here is that it's, it's more openness on both ways. So, for example, if somebody loses on a trade, they share that motivation behind why they're selling out of that position, and you can learn from their mistakes. And that's actually uh, better learning than learning from people making money because it's about minimizing losses while getting the big gains, right? So what are sprinkle bucks? I see here that uh, you have this. So what is a sprinkle buck? our own currency. So once you get started, you get 5,000 sprinkle bucks to invest in whatever you want in the U.S. market. And then you can actually apply those sprinkle bucks uh, for other things, like paying for premium services. You can buy some free trades, and you can eventually buy some swag and merchandise for it. So it's virtual money, but it can eventually lead to something. Exactly. Well, it's interesting uh, to come up with an idea like this, but how do you make money? Yeah, so uh, the way we make money is in, in two ways. One way is uh, the premium uh, system. So basically, in order for you to uh, copy other people's trades, so say that you like the way I invest, you can go get notifications on every trade I do. And um, in order for you to do that, you have to pay a premium subscription of nine ninety five a month. Uh, and you get access to that. Plus, if you use our brokerage, we charge you $8 per, per trade if you do through our brokerage. So you, you make money on every trade that people do through your brokerage? Exactly. Uh, but um, isn't that just the standard, uh, the amount that you make? So um, on the per-trade charge, is that a standard, or is that over and above um, what people would have to pay otherwise? That is the standard. So basically what you are, are saving in on is that you don't have to pay some expensive financial advice to do it. You can basically leverage uh, your social network and tap into it and get the information you need. And that is the, the way that we see um, the financial advisory industry shifting, and that's the disruption that's happening. Okay, we don't have a very good line. I assume you're on a mobile phone. I'd just like to ask you finally uh, – are you successful? I mean, how's it going so far? Yeah, um, the way that we uh, have seen it is that our, our growth, we're growing about uh, 10 to 15% per month, and we can see the conversion rates from being a, just a standard user to uh, actually going in and investing for real. It's about uh, 65%, and it's growing. So uh, I see this as a, as a big future for us. Okay, I um, have to let you go, Alex. Uh, just not a very good quality line, but uh, interesting uh, project and platform, and uh, all the best. Alex Wallen is Thank the chief, chief executive of Sprinklebit Holdings.
The time is now 15 minutes before 9 o'clock. Just keeping an eye on markets. Uh, gold price is now $1,290, so not much of a bid for gold. It's uh, down a little bit further, down 340 this morning, and has been uh, under $1,300 now for about a week. Oil prices, 102.26. And looking at currencies, the Australian dollar, 92.87, so a little risk off there for the Aussie dollar. The U.S. dollar showing strength overnight, and also some money rushing into U.S. Treasuries. And um, and so we see also Wall Street higher. And the RMB fixing the last one, 6.158, so 6.158. Back to our news, uh, at least 49 lawmakers, including 15 pan-Democrats, will be heading to Shenzhen today. They'll be meeting with senior mainland officials and discussing political reform. All the lawmakers will have a two-hour meeting with the officials, who include the director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, Wang Guangya, and the Basic Law Committee Chairman, Li Fei. Then, pan-democratic councillors will have one hour of exclusive talks. They've already made their position clear. 26 councillors signed a joint declaration yesterday saying that they would veto any reform package that fails to comply with international standards of democracy. Our Mike Weeks asked one of those de- democracy legislators, Kenneth Leung, if that was a wise thing to do before heading into talks at which they hope for compromise. Declaration is that will veto any uh, package which does not comply with international standards. Of course, I mean there are various international standards, we, but we're just talking about the very basic standards which was enshrined in the International Convention of Human Rights. But I just wonder if, if sort of uh, giving a warning or offering a threat of veto was the best way to start off discussions. <laughs> Um, uh, we're just stating uh, our ground firmly, clearly, and loudly. And this is a very, very humble um, demand and declaration. We just want a genuine choice. We're not talking about how to, you know, um, do the nomination process, these things. We are not talking about, uh, you know, uh, having civil nomination. We didn't mention these in our declaration. It is a very basic and humble, uh, you know, declaration because, because my universal suffrage, the common meaning would mean that people would be given a choice, a genuine choice. But if, it, if people are given a fake choice, then it's not an election at all. You've just come out of uh, four rounds of talks with Jiang Xiaoming. Um, what, what are your expectations, given those talks, for the session this afternoon? Well, I think it's just the beginning of a genuine dialogue between the pan-democrats and the central government. We would like to send a message to Jiang Xiaoming and the other uh, government officials saying that we would expect the uh, NPC Standing Committee decision, which will probably be made during the course of next week, um, to, to be an indication of the direction of the reform only, and that should leave us enough room to maneuver and negotiate in the coming months to come. We don't want to see a very tight and firm you know, decision being made next week. 
That's Kenneth Leung uh, from the accountancy sector speaking with Mike Weeks. Some things to watch out for today. We have the HSBC China Flash Manufacturing PMI for August at 9.45 this morning. And we'll get the July CPI numbers in Hong Kong this afternoon at 4.30. And some earnings will be coming out. Li and Fung and Bank of Communications among those. Well, I visited the offices of Morgan Stanley yesterday and had a chat with Helen Chow, Chief Greater China Economist at Morgan Stanley. And I spoke with her about a variety of issues. I also asked her if the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect was big enough to boost the Hong Kong and Shanghai economies. If we call this version 1.0, there might be a version 2.0, yeah. 3.0, and uh, I'm sure that there is uh, much more to be explored uh, for the local economy, in addition to better um, you know, capital allocation for the entire country. So also on the subject of reforms, if you look at the reform of the hukou system in China versus uh, state enterprise uh, reform uh, versus the liberalization of the currency, uh, what do you think has the most impact on people in China? Well, that's a very good question. I think uh, what has come up first is probably the hukou registration reform. And I think that it will have a, a very significant repercussion, you know, to, from tier three, tier four city all the way to tier one because of the way that people have been uh, leading their lives, et cetera, in the past have been largely com- you know, constrained by this particular family registrations, household registration system. But going forward, the, uh, especially by releasing a lot of the, the agricultural uh, population, um, is, you know, for those who desire to move into the cities, I mean, they are now currently having the right not to surrender their, their, their agricultural cultivation land and at the same time when they receive the hukou title. And therefore, this is an important change, and that will probably be the key that you know, people like the, the usual mom and pops will feel. Uh, but on top of that, I would say probably more important ones will be the land reform, fiscal reform, and SOE reforms from an overall top-down perspective. Yeah, when you start talking about... Um SOE reform, I think listeners of this program probably uh, glaze over a bit. Uh, what's more exciting, I would imagine, is for people to hear you know, what you think are some of the most exciting areas in the mainland economy at the moment. Uh, what's happening that really deserves our attention? What do you mean? Is it specifically like the new, about the new economy, or? technology, uh, biotech, uh, health, health care? Uh, any of these areas for Morgan Stanley, um, you know, uh, dramatic to the extent that uh, they can transform the mainland economy? I think there are actually more than one area that has been delivering uh, interesting, you know, uh, productivity uh, changes. For example, if you look at the Internet space, I think there is a lot of uh, new innovation, um, you know, combining, for example, the information technology as well as the consumption ideas. Uh, And, uh, for example, you also have the areas such as uh, the healthcare and the machinery, equipment manufacturing, et cetera, where basically you can see that China is really moving along not only as a large uh, manufacturing hub uh, using its, uh, its, uh, its low-cost labor uh, for those labor-intensive uh, areas, but also, more importantly, it's becoming a very important market for itself, for things that it can produce and for services it can provide. So I think that's potentially the next wave to come, um, you know, in terms of the service deregulation, uh, so that I think the service sector, both in terms of service of, you know, uh, consumers on a day-to-day basis, as well as the service 
sector part that serves the uh, that caters the demand from the manufacturing perspective. I think that's potentially somewhere we can see a lot of development. In so that's um, along the lines of Stephen Roach's uh, rebalancing of the mainland economy. Uh, is it um, close to happening, or is it being set back now by some of these um, problems with debt and uh, and slowdown in growth? Steve has a very high hurdle for uh, for rebalancing. If we are just going to scrap the surface and going for some easy ones, um, I think the consumption versus the uh, investment kind of rebalancing was an important part uh, in his thesis. And this, I think, has already been largely playing out. You know, I sometimes wonder with um, people like you, Helen, uh, with the, the difficulty of the job that you have, uh, do you sometimes just scratch your head and, uh, and wonder, you know, how do you really what get happened? to the bottom of it? Because everybody has a certain level of doubt about the data that we get out of China anyway. You see what's happening in the property sector right now and put on top of that the latest credit report, which was astonishingly odd. And then you have all this lifting of PMIs and other metrics that seem good. I mean, how do you actually do what you do? Well, I think you have a very good point. It wasn't a very easy job, and it probably never will be. Um, actually, the most recent money and credit data report, as you suggested from July, was indeed a quite uh, hairy mess to uh, decipher. Um, in fact, the, you know, the, 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 the very observation that you've seen more than one explanation uh, files coming out of the PBOC itself on the same day already can illustrate that it wasn't an easy thing to do to explain what has happened, especially when combined with the June numbers that was a uh, you know, surprise on the upside. This recent downside, downward surprise clearly was, uh, was anything but you know, being extremely easy to explain. But we think that if you are analyzing and synthesizing all these data. The most important thing in China is probably to get the, um, you know, get the key ones that you can really trust, and probably at the same time take a step back and using some monthly averages, etc., try to screen out some noises, and that's what can probably help you uh, keep your sanity. When you, when you look at all the negative commentary on China over the past couple of years. Uh, so far, it hasn't panned out. Um, does it pan out in the next uh, year or two? Sorry, you mean what kind of... Well, I would say that um, the number of bears on China has increased a lot over the past couple of years. The Jim Chanoses of the world and others who are betting against uh, China and have written extensively about it and have been shouting from the mountaintops about the levels of debt, uh, the problems that we see with the structure of the economy, too much investment, too much reliance on exports. Uh, eventually, this uh, debt load will mm -hmm. will crush the economy in the way that um, subprime did the U.S. and um, problems with the banking sector in Europe crushed the European economy. But it, so far, it hasn't happened in China. And these people continue to, to make these points, but we haven't seen it. You know, do you think that they are right or the others are right? Well, probably from my seat, I have to say that maybe I got to see uh, you know, a disproportionately large share of the bears in the zoo. Um, and uh, it, you know, in the last decade or so, uh, as a, working as a China economist on the Wall Street, I think the most important observation, interestingly, is that actually in the last three years or so, when growth was decelerating, in fact, we have seen a decline 
uh, in the number of bears, especially in terms of how muted their versions of hard landing would have become uh, for China. Because I think at the very beginning, people were very adamant over, okay, how bad growth has to be. China would have to have a black swan event, go belly up, and, you know, uh, all kinds of versions. Um, but recently, I think many people, after seeing three mini cycles, um, each one lasting for about a year, has come down towards a much more moderate version, saying that, well, we kind of know that it won't, wouldn't be too bad. It won't be a huge explosion, nor it would be an implosion. And it would probably be just bad, bad, bad for another you know, five years or so. I think in a way, it's an interesting convergence of such kind of China bear stories more towards a moderated version of uh, growth slowing, but not necessarily in a disastrous fashion. Helen Chow there, the chief greater China economist at Morgan Stanley, uh, taking some pleasure in watching the bears in the zoo. Well, in Indonesia, the Constitutional Court is expected to give its ruling today on whether the presidential election was rigged. Former General Prabowo Subianto lost the poll to his rival Joko Widodo, but wants the result overturned. Mr. Subianto said that there was widespread fraud. From Jakarta, the BBC's Michael Bristow reports. On and off for the past few weeks, Prabowo Subianto supporters have protested outside Indonesia's constitutional court in Jakarta. They've been watched by hundreds of riot police, but there's been little trouble. The supporters believe there was massive fraud during the presidential election last month. Mr Subianto claimed there were problems at tens of thousands of polling stations. The court's been hearing evidence, but will only order a revote if it believes that fraud affected the overall outcome. Jakarta's mayor, Joko Widodo, was declared the winner. He received 8 million votes more than his rival, so it would be a major surprise if the constitutional court overturned the result. If Mr Widodo is the winner, he'll become president in October. Political analyst Tobias Basuki said he's known as a man of the people. BBC's Michael Bristow reporting. Well, an act of violence that shocked the entire conscience of the world. That's how President Obama described the beheading of the journalist James Foley. Well, yesterday a video appeared on social media showing the journalist being beheaded by a masked man who claimed to be from the militant Islamic State. James Foley's family paid tribute to him. Here's his younger brother, Michael. Just two things I'd like to say that I'm going to go about Jim. One is um, the type of person he was, you know, he put himself at the front of the line in this, in this setting. And, um, number two, his, 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 some of his final words, which I haven't memorized, um, really sum up him and how we feel about him. And he, his last hope was to, um, to be with family again. And, uh, you know, at some point we'll be together. And that's, those are the two, two takeaways that I'd like people to have about my brother. That's the younger brother of James Foley, who was uh, beheaded in that video yesterday. Well, that's our program for today. Thanks uh, very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. The time coming up to 9 o'clock, the weather today, it will have some showers and a high of 29.